Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Um, it's our practice to go around and uh, say our name. My name is Cass. Krisha. Christian. My name is Michael. My name is Mark. Jason. Mom. Jeff. My name is Jerry. I'm Larry. I'm Ed. Andreas. I'm Matthew. My name is Stephanie. I'm Brad. My name is Jim. I'm Mike. Ray. Nick. I'm Richard. Jack. My name is Joe. Jay. Sam. Um, we're uh, blessed to have uh, Walt Opie back with us um, today. Uh, Walt is introduced to Insight Meditation in 1993 at Spirit Rock and attended his first residential retreat there in, uh, in 2005. He's a graduate of both the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leaders Program and the Salty Center Buddhist Chaplaincy Program. A participant in the current Insight Meditation Society Teacher Training Program. He leads a monthly sitting group for people in recover, recovery at the Oakland East Bay Meditation Center on the last Sunday of the month. Serves as a volunteer Buddhist facilitator at Solana State Prison in Vacaville and is executive director of the Buddhist Pathways Prison Project, BP3. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let me know if you can't hear me. I'll try to speak up a little bit. Uh, good to see you all. I recognize a lot of faces here. I've been here a couple times before. Uh, I was very moved when I recently found out that Hal Hershey passed away. Uh, he was the one that uh, invited me to be here today. So, um, and I just noticed on your Facebook page in a, another place that what had happened, and uh, so I'm sorry to hear about that. Um, and trying to think about what to talk about today. Thought about a lot of different topics. Um, went, went through the usual process. Came across this quote from Gil Fronsdale, who said, uh, "Self is a form of <coughs> agitation in the mind." Self as a vegetation. That's so true, <laughs> at least from my perspective. Um, yeah, uh, so I find that when I'm going to speak, the part that's difficult is the selfing, you know. How, uh, how will I be perceived? What should I say that's really going to impress everybody? <laughs> These kind of things. Um, so I'm in this teacher training and I uh, as part of it, they they have us sit with teachers. You know, you um, attend retreats, and you're kind of a trainee, and with the other teachers. And I recently did this with uh, a teacher named Christina Feldman, who is uh, I think she's Canadian originally, lives in England. She doesn't come out here that often, but she's kind of uh, she's been called the Granny of Mindfulness. <laughs> and she's kind of a short but powerhouse <coughs> teacher who's been teaching almost as long as Joseph Goldstein and people like that, um, and can be kind of intimidating because <laughs> she definitely knows what she wants. She was teaching the retreat that John Kabat-Zinn was on when he came up from, for the idea from uh, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. That's where she got the granny of mindfulness. Uh, name apparently, <laughs> but anyway, she was saying, "Well, if you get nervous before you talk, uh, 
that's extra, basically. She said that she stopped being nervous when she realized she was just sharing the dharma that she loved. Like, if you can just remember, you're just sharing the dharma that you love. So um, I will do my best to share the dharma that I love with you this morning. Um, the, well, one other thing that wasn't mentioned is that uh, I have a piece in this book, so I always wanted to be a writer, and I finally am a published writer. I have seven pages in this book still. <laughs> <laughs> Creating peace of mind in the midst of urban chaos. Uh, and J.D. Doyle, who was here I think, recently, is also in this Share that we we both went through the community Dharma Leaders training program together. What is the name again? Uh, the book is still in still comma in the city. At one point, the publisher wanted to take out the comma, and we're like, no, it's just still in the city, and not the same meaning. <laughs> Group's a great example of still in the city because um, it's a very urban, you know, sangha. And uh, the subtitle again was "Creating Peace of Mind in the Midst of Urban Chaos." Anyway, um, I live in Berkeley now. I, I lived in San Francisco uh, off and on, and uh, I first moved here in 1990. For some reason, I've been reflecting on this. So I was uh, grew up in a small town in Virginia, and uh, decided I had to get out and see the rest of the world. And somehow, and drove cross country by myself. Uh, I literally told my parents I was headed west. <laughs> I had like a, a vehicle and just kind of put everything I owned in it. And drove west by myself and visited people along the way. I, I went. West via New Orleans, New Orleans for some reason. <laughs> so I did it the strange route, not the traditional pioneer route. Um, but then I had a friend who lived in the hate uh, and had a free couch at the time. <laughs> so I ended up living on his couch for a couple months until I found a apartment. And I was just reflecting when we were meditating earlier. I never would have guessed in 1990 that me the that I would somehow end up sitting in a place like this, <laughs> you know, and next to a you know, Buddha, <laughs> about to speak to any group. <laughs> uh, so, and I thought that I would be a published author, maybe, but not in still in the city, but some great novel that I was <laughs> concocting in my mind. Um, so, it's just an interesting journey, you know, and uh, interesting to find myself at this place. So the, the topic that I've been talking about a lot is uh, looking at impermanence. You've probably heard the story about uh, Suzuki Roshi that's in Crooked Cucumber, that book, but um, David Chadwick's the author. He talks about how he was, this was February 1968, uh, he was sitting at Tassajara down south near Big Sur. Uh, with about 50 black-robed fellow students. And before us uh, was Suzuki Roshi, you know, the founder of the first Zen Buddhist monastery in the Western Hemisphere, this is what he says. Um, not sure if that's true or not. But uh, anyway, he says that uh, Suzuki Roshi, after they'd sat, said, thank you very much, and then took a sip of water, cleared his throat, looked at the students and said, is there some question? Uh, and, and, you know, people kind of thought about it, and uh, then this, the author raises his hand or something, indicates he has a question. Suzuki Roshi says, you know, yes. And he says, Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, and I really love them, and they're very inspiring. And I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple. But I must admit, I don't understand it. <laughs> I love it. But I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you just please put it in a nutshell? <laughs> Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? And of course, uh, everyone laughed, uh, and Suzuki Roshi laughed. What a ludicrous question. I don't think any of us expected him to answer it. He was not a man who 
you could pin down, and he didn't like to give his students something definite to cling to. He had often said not to have, quote, some idea of what Buddhism was, but he did answer. He looked at me and said, everything changes. Then he asked for another question. <laughs> uh, so I love that. He, if pressed, he just boils down to everything. Everything changes. Um, and there, the Buddha, it's not exact, but um, somewhere I have a quote about. That good. Oh yeah, here it is. Um, so the Buddha was, there was a point where a bhikkhu, a monk asked the Buddha to teach him the Dharma in brief. There are multiple times. He had different answers at different times. But one time he said, teaching the Dharma in brief, uh, you should abandon desire for whatever is impermanent. Abandon desire for whatever is impermanent. Um, and then what he, what he clarified was that was the classic teaching on the five aggregates. You may have heard these, the five. Um, they kind of form everything that we tend to cling to or desire. And that's form, so that's the you know, body uh, form. Feeling, uh, more like feeling tone, we cling to pleasant or we uh, push away unpleasant uh, and we kind of uh, gloss over neutral or, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That's the feeling tone. Perception, uh, uh, volitional formations, which is, um, you know, intention or plotting schemes would be part of that. And consciousness, um, all of which is impermanent, so there's nothing really to cling to. Um, and we can desire it, but it only causes us suffering because it's so fleeting. Um, so that list comes up again and again, the, the five aggregates. And really, um, one teacher I like said that all the teachings, this is a, all the teachings boil down to one, one thing, which is uh, don't cling to anything. Don't cling to anything. And uh, of course, meanwhile, we're wired to cling. <laughs> that's the crazy part. So, the, so that's why maybe they say the teachings go against the stream. It, that certainly goes against human nature. <laughs> um, and I think we're wired to cling for our own survival. So that's interesting. <laughs> and yet the Buddha is pointing to something else. Um, there's, you know, I, uh, I'm, you know, part of my story is I found out I was an alcoholic uh, at the age of 21. And I, so I found myself sober, and I took in, I, I, I believed I was an alcoholic. I found out my grandfather had been an alcoholic and other relatives, and, that, and I, I just knew that when I started drinking, I had no ability to stop on my own, you know, and it was very clear that it was probably going to kill me sooner rather than later. Uh, and so I was able to accept that, yeah, maybe it's good if I just don't drink anymore. <laughs> you know, like, when, but then uh, it's like, well, now what do I do with myself? Because I was 21 years old, and my whole life was kind of geared around drinking, and in a social, you know, part of my social life was around that. And um, so I had to kind of figure out how to be in the world without that particular crutch, I guess you could say. And um, it took me quite a while to find Buddhism. It was in 1993, that I mentioned in the bio, that um, I'd, I'd read about Buddhism and I was always interested in it, even in high school. Um, but it wasn't until I met a real teacher, somebody took me to see Jack Kornfield. Um, it's it's kind of interesting because I wanted to be uh, studying art and I met this woman who ran an art gallery in Berkeley, and I started sitting in her gallery on Saturdays for her, and uh, just liked her aesthetic, and she had some great art that she would choose for her gallery. I, I liked her sort of stable of artists, you know. Um, 
And then one day she said, you should come with me to hear Jack Cornfield at Spirit Rock. And it was like I'd never heard any of these words before. <laughs> I didn't know what Spirit Rock was, didn't know who Jack Cornfield was. Uh, but I trusted her because I liked everything else she sort of introduced me to. And I went to hear Jack Cornfield and um, what he said just really spoke to me at that time. And it was kind of like the Suzuki Roshi thing. I'm not sure that story I read earlier, I'm not sure I even got it necessarily, like what was going on there, but I just knew it was something I wanted to come back to and hear again and again. Um, so I, I went and I started dragging friends out there, you know, and we would sit in the back or we would even lay down on the floor in the back during the meditation part, I remember. And uh, it, it wasn't until um, later I was going through a divorce and I was in some suffering. <laughs> in, I was living in San Francisco, and uh, I realized I'd also think I'd been laid off from my job. <laughs> Just uh, different things were things were kind of falling apart, and I was thinking I should be happier than I am. I've been I've stayed sober this whole time. I've been I've been a good lad. I did, did what they told me to do, and yet I'm still miserable. What's going on? <laughs> and uh, so I. I finally, at some point it occurred to me, they keep talking about retreats when I hear Jack Kornfeld speak. Maybe I should try one of these things. <laughs> so uh, it was 2000, 2005, I finally was in enough pain and suffering to try a retreat. I went on a five-day men's retreat at Spirit Rock. They don't even have those anymore, but they did at the time. And it was probably good because it felt familiar. I, I grew up going to like boys camps. I was a counselor, you know, so used to like groups of uh, boys and men or whatever, so men's retreat worked for me at the time, and, uh, but what really happened was I just, I got, I saw the benefit of the practice, that I got some relief from the suffering I was in with this divorce I was going through, and I also had this classic insight that I was talking about that don't cling to anything, and it occurred to me that the reason I'm suffering over this divorce is because I don't want it to be happening. I'm like <laughs> mentally fighting it. I went to a couples counselor with the, my, uh, this ex-person, <laughs> and at the end of the session, I, re I really liked him. He looked like Jeff Bridges. It was somewhere in San Francisco. He had like long hair, and he was just kind of looked like a kindly Jeff Bridges kind of dude. Um, and he looked at me, he looked at both of us, but I felt like he was more looking at me, and he said, uh, he said, uh, I find that couples often come to me seven years too late. <laughs> I swear that's what he said. It still doesn't even make sense because seven years too late is a long. But, um, but it was just, for me, he was telling me, like, this ain't, I can, you can keep coming to see me all you want. I'm not going to save this one. <laughs> and, and, and the way that was good, it was helped me let go. I was on that retreat, and then I, after the first retreat, I had been on a wait list to have to do the 10-day fall retreat with Jack Cornfield, which at the time seemed like uh, quite an exciting thing to me. And uh, I got I got in off the wait list, so I sat two retreats in a row, and it was on that second retreat that I really had some insights about this letting go and that this, the, the clinging was what was causing me the suffering and. And also fighting impermanence that, uh, you know, we think that, you know, you, you, we think that these things are permanent that aren't necessarily permanent and, uh, um, or that aren't permanent because nothing, it's all a fleeting world. That's one thing I love in the, the Zen tradition. They call this the fleeting world. There's a great um, Dogen poem. Maybe I'll throw in here. Um, he says, uh, to what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. I love that. Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. And when you really kind of pull back, we really are here for such a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it's always nice to get that extra perspective. So I, I just saw that the more I let go, the less suffering I'd have around that divorce. It was just a good, I guess, trick.
training ground for me. Um, and by the time we actually signed all the paperwork, it was at City Hall, downtown San Francisco, or, or building maybe next door to City Hall it was. And uh, I just remember we had to do that together. Came out, cordial hug, walked away. I went and listened to some live music in City Hall that day. This woman was playing guitar. <laughs> and, her, uh, and it was kind of like, okay, life goes on. And uh, it, was, it was just a valuable lesson that the, the less I cling, the less I have to suffer. And it may sound simple, but you know, please go try it. Because <laughs> uh, like I said, we are kind of wired to cling. We're also wired, um, there was a study, I didn't bring all the details, but there, there's a um, scientist who was studying rats. I feel sorry for the poor rats, but um, the, they gave some of the rats a, uh, I think it was morphine, a morphine drip. Um, can't, uh, I can't remember all the details right now, let's see. But um, the, the key was they noticed that the, the rat, uh, the brain of the rat, um, when when he was wanting the morphine, it fired a much larger portion of, of a certain part of the brain than when he actually got the morphine and was enjoying it. And, the, and that was a very small, and it was very easily disrupted too. The pleasure that he actually was getting from the, from the morphine uh, was very, you know, tentative. Uh, Tenuous, <laughs> and but meanwhile, it was really the wanting. It was really what he discovered was our brains are really what we're really wired for is the wanting part of it, the because that's what motivates us to get what we need to survive or to procreate or whatever it is um, to uh, keep this whole human thing churning. I guess um, the engine that keeps it going is more of the wanting part. And uh, that was helpful for me to realize, or just to hear that. And the Buddha was pointing to this as well, I, I think, in a lot of his teachings, because he said the, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth is, is about craving. And that's, to me, what he's, this is what that scientific study was pointing to. So, um, and the craving leads to the clinging. So we have to see the craving in order to uh, not get caught by the clinging. It all happens, of course, just like that. Um, I wanted to also just bring in a story that um, from the suttas. Oh, here, here we go. That. Um, this has always been an interesting story to me that the, the Buddha had two chief disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana. You may have heard of them. And if you see, I don't know if we have any here, but yeah, I think, I think that would be them over there. So in, uh, in a lot of Buddhist uh, art, there's the Buddha and then there's uh, somebody to his left and to his right, the two other monks. And that would, that's Sariputta. Sariputta and Mogalana, his two chief disciples. And so they were, um, they were considered, Sariputta was considered second only to the Buddha in his depth and range of understanding of the Dharma and, and uh, his ability to teach the Dharma. And Mogalana was said to be foremost in psychic powers and second only to Sariputta in the other, in the wisdom and understanding. So they were, you know, pretty highly revered monks in there. There are lots of suttas in the, in the Pali Canon. Assuming most of you know what I'm talking about, the, the old texts of Buddhism um, where the story is just about Sariputta or Moggallana. The Buddha's not even in it. Yeah, but they give you know, um, equally beautiful teachings. Um, so about six months before the Buddha died, when he was 80 years old, Sariputta and Moggallana both died within a short um, amount of time from each other. And uh, shortly after that, the Buddha spoke to a group. He was um, dwelling among the Vajians at Ukachela on the bank of the river Ganges, um, together with a huge 
group of monks. Um, this was right, right not long after Sariputta and Moggallana had attained final Nibbana, which is how they called um, died. And on that occasion, uh, the Blessed One was sitting in the open air among this crowd, and he kind of surveyed the crowd, uh, and he, he addressed the, the bhikkhus thus, the bhikkhus are monks, bhikkhus, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have attained final Nibbana. This assembly was not empty for me earlier, and I had no concern for whatever quarter Sariputta and Moggallana were dwelling in. The Arahats, the perfectly enlightened ones, who rose in the past, also had just such a supreme pair of disciples as I had in Sariputta and Moggallana. The Arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones, who will arise in the future will also have just such a supreme pair of disciples. It is wonderful because on the part of the disciples, it is amazing on the part of the disciples that they will act in accordance with the teacher's instructions and comply with his admonitions that they will be dear and agreeable to the four assemblies. Uh, four assemblies are the monks and nuns and the male, uh, and the men and women of the lay people. Um, these days we probably have more than four assemblies, but that's the ancient <coughs> way they put it. Uh, it is wonderful bhikkhus on the part of the Tathagata. It is amazing uh, that when such a pair of disciples has attained Final Nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata, the Buddha. He called himself the Tathagata, the one who has gone thus, something like that. Um, but I think it's interesting because he, he's saying he doesn't have sorrow or lamentation, but he feels there, he still feels the loss. There's an emptiness there that wasn't there before, that he never, he didn't feel until that his chief disciples were gone. I've always found this very moving because um, maybe part of me is looking for that because I think it's it's a little too uh, easy to just say, okay, now we're fully enlightened and we don't feel uh, sorrow or lamentation, you know, sadness, but um, the, it, that there is, uh, I just find this a curious passage that he did feel the emptiness of it and uh, Admittedly, I was inspired by the loss of Hal, to, uh, who I did not know well, but did meet and felt his kind heart for sure. But um, so, so I, I did want to just uh, bring that in. I know um, that because uh, we we do want to honor people's loss. That we there is something that we lose when each of us is gone. And uh, I always wanted the Buddha to say more about that emptiness <laughs> that he felt. Um, but maybe, yeah, I, I don't know how much time I have. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Uh, so then the Buddha goes on, he says, um, Uh, how how bhikkhus is it? Um, yeah, okay. How bhikkhus is it to be obtained here? What may what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate? Uh, this is a there's another translation. So this is his teaching on impermanence. Uh, the other translation, how could it possibly be so that what is born, created, conditioned, and liable to fall, fall apart should not fall apart? That is not possible. Um, that is impossible. It is just as if the largest branches would break off a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. So too, because in the great Bhikkhu Sangha, standing possessed of heartwood, Sariputta and Moggallana have attained final Nibbana. How Bhikkhus is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be 
conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. So, um, again, he's, he's you know, this, this understanding that everything's impermanent. We're all here only temporarily. And so we, this is um, just a fact of our existence. But, um, but then he also compares losing Sariputta and Mogalana to a tree possessed of heartwood, uh, a great tree losing two of its biggest branches. So that's not a, a minor loss for the tree, I wouldn't think. <laughs> um, so that's interesting, too, that he includes that. And then he goes on and gives this advice. Uh, Therefore, bhikkhus, dwell with yourselves as your own island, with yourselves as your own refuge, with no other refuge. Dwell with the Dhamma as your island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does a bhikkhu dwell with himself as his own island, his own refuge, no other refuge? Here a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. He dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, mind in mind, phenomena in phenomena. So he goes through the uh, what's called usually today the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishments of mindfulness. So he points us back to our own practice of mindfulness, to our own bodies, uh, to our own um, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, all those things that are, um, you know, back to, to just uh, being present with whatever is arising in this moment. And uh, those bhikkhus, either now or after I am gone, who dwell with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge. Uh, it is these bhikkhus who will be for me topmost of those keen on the training. Basically, these will be the best of the best. I've seen another translation that this is really what we're practicing. That no matter what happens, we just keep coming back to being a ref our own refuge and taking refuge in the Dharma, these, the teachings on things like impermanence, that there's nothing to cling to. We just keep letting go, even when it's painful, keep letting go. And, um, and keep, you know, uh, doing this with a sense of, uh, I would say, self-compassion. That, you know, it's not to say it's easy. <laughs> He's not saying this is easy. He's just saying this is the way out of the suffering. And uh, that, um, I just realized, you know, that really has been my experience, is that I've been able to, when I've gone through difficult things, I've been able to, to use the practice. It kind of started with the, uh, when I was going through that divorce and went on a couple of retreats, and I started seeing how it can give me relief. But then I've, of course, been through lots of other ups and downs in life since then, um, and I have been able to find refuge in this practice that we're talking about. And, um, even these teachings like Gil Fransdale, self is a form of agitation in the mind, <laughs> have been helpful, you know, because <laughs> see that you start to see how this is all operating, um, and lets me helps me let go. And uh, my own father died of uh, leukemia uh, about six or seven years ago. And uh, I was at a Buddhist monastery. I was uh, working at Spirit Rock. I used to work in the, basically the marketing department. We call it communications. And I was interviewing uh, Ajahn Amaro, who some of you may know. He's a Buddhist monk. He used to be the co-abbot of Abhayagiri up in Redwood Valley, north of here. So I was up there to interview him. And uh, he was about to go off to England to be the new head abbot at Amaravati Monastery over there. And so I had, actually they made me kind of, I got there and somebody told me it was going to be like this. I got there and I said, and you know, I prearranged it. And he said, come on up and you can interview me. And I got there and I was like, great, I'm here. Uh, when can we do the interview, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, oh, well, 
It couldn't possibly be today. I'm, I'm absolutely swamped. <laughs> Uh, you know, hopefully we'll work it in tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and he was running around to have, he did have a lot to do, obviously. And so I was like, okay, well, I knew that it might be a couple days. So it settled in. Uh, the next day, you know, I see him in the morning. He's like, well, it, today is not looking good. <laughs> Maybe uh, tomorrow looks better. <laughs> so we didn't get to it that day. And then the, the next day, started, I think I had to leave uh, the following day. And he, he said, okay, I think we can do it at, you know, 10 o'clock this morning. So, um, but, so we, you know, finally all worked out. I, I interviewed him, had a beautiful interview. He, he's an amazing uh, monk. He just was so present and, like, at ease in, in his body. And you know, it was a beautiful example of the, the practice. And uh, the interview finished, and somebody came up and said, you have a, you're, you're to call home immediately, you have a family emergency. And uh, my cell phone didn't, doesn't, didn't at the time work at that place, the no reception, so I had to use like a landline. And I didn't even know what home meant, because I had the home where I lived, but also had my parents' home, uh, which the, you know, I kind of suspected it was them, because anyway, I figured out it was my parents' house and I called, and my dad answers the phone, and he said he had just been diagnosed with terminal uh, cancer, some form of leukemia, you know, stage four. They thought he had about three months to live. And, um, when, you know, it was pretty, so then we, at some point we hung up, and uh, obviously shocking. I knew he was having some blood tests, but I didn't know, that didn't expect it to be that serious. Um, and anyway, but, but the, the teaching on impermanence really came up for me even then, and I went into the hall at Abayagiri and sat in the back of the hall. I was kind of in some shock, uh, so I couldn't really function that well, but I was um, sitting in the back of the hall, and all these people were giving Ajahn Amaro gifts, parting gifts, and just basically saying goodbye to him. And it was just an interesting thing, you know, it's like, all around us, all around me, and all around us, things are changing all the time. Uh, we often don't tune into it, um, but in that moment, it was very clear. And, it, and you know, it just came. You know, my father was going to die at some point, and this looks like this is going to be it. You know, and that there was a sense of, um, you know, this is what's happening now, and. Uh, uh, it did help a lot, you know. It didn't mean that I didn't uh, didn't go through a whole. You know, he died 14 months later, so he ended up getting a lot of treatment that helped for a while, and uh, it was, in a way, a beautiful process because um, it was pretty. Con at least from from my standpoint, I was pretty conscious for the whole thing and present and able to be with them and kind of even near the end, said, okay, is there anything we're leaving unsaid, anything I, you know, that we need to talk about? And he said, he kind of thought about it for a minute, he said, no, uh, I'm just proud of you. He gave me a hug, you know. Yeah. And that was the last real hug that he gave me, standing up. And, was a, mm -hmm. and I was really grateful that I was, you know, I think the practice allowed me to be present enough to really have that moment with him. And, uh, so when he did die, I, I didn't feel, I felt pretty complete in that, you know, um, we work, and, and this is somebody who I was basically at war with for my whole teen years <laughs> and early 20s, so, so anyway. Uh, so the, the practice really did kind of hold me through that experience. And Oh, I know. I wanted to mention, I uh, listened to an interview that Sharon Salzberg uh, did with Tara Brock. These are big Buddhist teacher teachers, if you haven't heard of them. Um, and Sharon said, I, you may have heard of that acronym RAIN, uh, R-A-I-N, which uh, stands for Recognize, Accept, or Allow, Investigate, and Non-Identify, usually. 
And Sharon said, I heard, and Tara Brock is particularly well known for spreading this one. She, she repeats it a lot in her books and stuff. And Sharon said, I heard that you've been re, uh, that you've worked, reworked this one a little lately. And uh, could you tell us about it or whatever? And Tara Brock said, yeah, well, the first three are basically the same. But I realized the last one, the non-identify, wasn't helping, wasn't so helpful. And I changed it to nurture. And because first we have to nurture, bring in the, the compassion, self-compassion and compassion. Uh, you know, kept the heart quality needs to be included. You can't just automatically non-identify. You have to let allow the space for the heart. And then, once you've gotten to that place, then you can rest in the non-identification. But you have to get through that, the heart part first. So I thought that was a beautiful uh, little shift of that teaching <laughs> wanted to share with you. And then uh, maybe I'll end, uh, end with one last thing. Um, I sat a retreat just as a, what we call a yogi, recently with uh, Joseph Goldstein, who I'm in the teacher training with. Thought it would be interesting to just sit a retreat with him as a regular yogi. And he co-taught the retreat with Kamala Masters, who's um, a lesser known but really wonderful teacher, uh, lives in Hawaii most of the time on Maui. Uh, they have a, uh, a retreat center on Maui. If you ever want to do a self-retreat, you can uh, go there. It's, I went there not too long ago. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's up on the sort of mountain overlooking the rest of the island. <laughs> Pretty spectacular, and they have fresh mango groves and stuff. But um, she shared a teaching from Upandita. He's a Burmese teacher, uh, one of the great masters. From, he passed away, I uh, can't remember, maybe 10 years ago. Um, and she said that he told her once the three most important things in practice. I always I love these kind of lists. <laughs> um, number one was continuity, continuity of mindfulness or awareness. So you hear this a lot, but it's worth remembering. And then number two is clarity, seeing clearly. So we have to be, um, we have to have a continuous mindfulness, but it can't be what I've heard called muddled mindfulness. It needs to be clear. We need to really be clear that I am being mindful in this moment. <laughs> it's, uh, and I'm seeing clearly. I'm not caught in greed, aversion, delusion, uh, some kind of colored glasses. And then the last one, though, is compassion. Holding others and ourselves with tenderness and care. So it's basically the same teaching from the rain. So continuity, clarity, and compassion. These are the three most important things in practice. Um, and then lastly, I'll just end on uh, Venerable Analia, this German monk that uh, I uh, really valued his teachings. He says the practice can be boiled down to this phrase, keep, keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. Mm -hmm. And then I guess in parentheses, and never cling to anything. So my parting words to you are, keep calmly knowing change and never cling to anything. Thank you. And uh, I don't know if we have time for any questions. Or... Okay. If anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free. Yes? Um, I wonder if I could ask you something about the, your prison practice. Um, and I was wondering if sort of the approach to cleaning and change might be have a different um, character in, in that setting. It seems like change would not happen quite as quickly as it does out here, and that clinging might be a self-preservation kind of yeah. um, quality for people. It's a great question, yeah, I appreciate it. And I had thought of bringing a story or two in around that, but um, actually you'd be surprised. <laughs> Bill, one thing is uh, in prison people get moved around a lot, so they're not necessarily in one prison and they just stay there. Now that does happen too. But um, I have one prison, I, I go we, mainly to Solano, 
We have two different groups, uh, one on level three, which is a higher, uh, more maximum security, and one on level two, which is a lower, like more like medium security, and people are close, can be closer to getting out um, on level two. And level two has a good, solid group of 20 guys that show up every single Wednesday uh, for our group, and they're really committed and practice hard. And uh, but uh, and then the people get out regularly, or they get transferred regularly, and new people arrive regularly, um, or people go up for parole and get denied, but they were really thinking they were going to get it this time. So there are a lot of ways in which um, they're constantly dealing with change. And also, uh, people in the prison die. I haven't had anybody yet in our group <coughs> die in prison, but I've seen but people around them die pretty regularly, sometimes natural causes, sometimes not. Um, but so it's not so different, really. Um, you know, there are things that, and the things that get clung to are just on a s different <coughs> scale in a way. Like one thing, you have to wear your, uh, I just learned this recently, you have to wear your state-issued boots to the dining hall in prison, <laughs> in this prison anyway. You can't wear sneakers. You can't wear any other shoes. Every time you go to the dining hall, for some reason, you have to have these specific boots on. <laughs> I'm not even sure why. And there are guys that just really resent the heck out of that. <laughs> They're clinging to their kind of resentment of, this seems ridiculous, why do I have to do this? And yet, if they don't do it, it causes them you know, trouble. So I appreciate the question. It's kind of, um, does that answer? I mean, I'm trying to think of the, the clinging. Um, yeah, if we have more time, we can go into it more. Right? That's the short answer. <laughs> uh, yes? Did you say that intention was one of the five accolades? Uh, yes. Okay. Volitional formation intention. Interesting, because I <coughs> was listening to a, a podcast about uh, Oprah and Brene Brown, and they were talking. Oprah was talking all about how she set an intention and she achieved that. And so it was just kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition that the Buddha is saying, "Don't have that. Don't set intention." Well, uh, he's just saying it's impermanent to, and don't cling to it. Yeah, but he's not saying. Yeah, but no, you can have wholesome intention, and that's 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 perfectly wonderful to do. It's, it's more just uh, that. Well, intention is, of course, the what causes good or bad karma. Uh, you know, wholesome or unwholesome karma is our intention. We could cut somebody with a knife, and it could be a surgeon who's there to heal them, or it could be somebody who's trying to harm them. Mm. So it's all about the intention. Um, That's a big another topic worth delving into further <laughs> another day. Any other questions, comments? Yes. Okay. Um, I've just been thinking lately about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and um, frankly, specifically around public leadership. <laughs> and I don't want to get into all that, but I just want to know, I, I was trying to understand, reflect back on uh, how the Dharma speaks to that concept of forgiveness. I mean, I know about loving kindness and about other things, but it, what is it? I, just, I, never, I, I often don't hear the word forgiveness used in the Dharma. So. Yeah. Thank you for talking about it. Right, that's a great. Um, it's interesting, it's not used. <laughs> in the like, if you read the Pali Canon, they don't really talk about forgiveness per se. There's sort of a making amends. In other words, if we've uh, and, and it's important to admit our wrongs so that we don't repeat them. Um, but there's not a lot of uh, what we call forgiveness. I think it might be sort of a, a concept coming from a different place. Although you do hear in modern Buddhism, people do talk about. The importance of forgiveness. So it's not to say, but uh, you know, in studying early Buddhism, which was one of my main areas of focus, the truth is there's not much on forgiveness itself. Um, 
But you know, one thing I heard recently from a, I won't name them, but a senior Dharma teacher <laughs> was that their way of having compassion for, say, current leadership is that they are creating so much harm for themselves, if we believe the law of karma, that they're, you know, ultimately the, their actions are going to cause so much harm, both for others <coughs> and for themselves, that we can have compassion for the fact that they're at, basically acting out of such a level of ignorance, of not understanding how much suffering they're going to cause even themselves, that, we can, that there could be some compassion for them from that angle. <laughs> that may or may not be helpful, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> Um, last thing I'll say is one thing that in that realm that helped me was hearing Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a very senior monk, say that you know it is okay and not only okay but important to have a sense of moral outrage at times. It's not based on politics per se, but just on you know whether things are when we see harm being done, it's it's appropriate to have moral outrage about that harm being done. Um, and, and important to act in ways that we can uh, to, to prevent ongoing harm. Um, so that, I found that empowering in a way, because it gives me permission to have, not, not self-righteous anger, but moral outrage. Um, yeah, so that, that's another big topic. <laughs> but thank you, I appreciate that question. <laughs> One yeah. last question. Okay. Yeah, I, um, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, and always an important reminder. I, um, in personal relationships, even, you know, I mean, the phenomenon of not seeing someone you loved once for 50 years and then jumping into each other's arms and things like that, there's, where is that maintained, this, this heart connection? Which is, um, it is an attachment. Uh, I would mourn if, I, if, if they died. Um, yet it has not been a, um, uh, something that drives my life. It's just, um, connections are real. And um, I'm prepared to accept that Suffering is the price of attachment um, to people I love, because that's just the way it is. Um, and I, I don't really know how I'm going to redesign my heart in the next 20 years to stop having attachments to people I love. And that's okay. I mean, I, you know, suffering is actually not the end of the world. Um, uh, of that nature, you know. yeah. um, seeing them suffer is is horrible. Um, but uh, you see what I mean? I mean, I, there's just a certain amount of if you're connected in your life, you're gonna you're gonna suffer if they suffer or if you lose them. Am I just being dim? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it just seems like unavoidable. So that when you know when Buddhism says this practice will eliminate suffering. I don't see it. Um, I can, it can, might eliminate mental bullshit, but uh, not, not the suffering that comes from our connection. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to disagree. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I don't mean, to, I'm, I'm not protesting, but it's, it's um, I can see that there are degrees of attachment. And, and it can move into unhealthy um, and there can be addictions, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like the Buddha and missing his house, you know, they were always there and now they're gone. And that's why I think that story is so, yes, so yes, I uh, that. Yeah. Uh, poignant, because he's not saying, I mean, he's acknowledging he, lo he loved those two guys, uh -huh. you know. I feel like that was his way of acknowledging, hey, the, the world is an emptier place without those two guys. Mm -hmm. And he died six months later, and you know, he wasn't fighting it at that point. He was, so um, I hear you, I mean, this is, our connections with others is what gives life the real juice and meaning. Um, so there's a bit of a, that's why I brought in that teaching, not that I, 
just as something to contemplate. That I love that the Buddha said, you know, the world's a little emptier today without those two guys. So acknowledging it, and also the, the thing about the tree—it's like the, this great tree has lost two of its most important branches. So that's to me his way of acknowledging it. But he's saying he's not suffering because he's—he understood that it was never permanent, that it was always. You know, there's the five recollections that we're all of, none of us gets out of here alive, we're all of the nature to be born and die. We can, you know, for me, uh, like those moments with my father were very sweet and precious, knowing how impermanent it all really was in that moment, in a way heightened it. When he died, I, I grieved, but I also was able to let go, because I kind of was there when I could be, and just let it go. But now I'm also a father myself, uh, and now I understand even better how all this is easier, you know, is very powerful, these connections. So I hear you. And there are, and you know, what's even interesting is my daughter, we've, you know, she's met a lot of little kids, right? And we've put her together in different playgroups and whatever, and there's two, really one little girl that she's completely bonded with and that means something to her, you know, and she wants to be with that one little girl. And other kids are kind of like, eh. <laughs> but, you know, you put her in that room with that one little girl and it's just like, she can't, they can't get enough of each other. And where did that come from? I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of mysterious. Because um, it's not, you know, we didn't plan that. <laughs> So who knows? You know, I do think there. You know, there's mystery. I, I also like to just leave the. Hey, we don't have. We don't know all. Of, all of what's happening here. So there are you know, mystery remains. Uh, anyway, thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks. I guess we're done. Um, next week, uh, John Martin will be our Dharma uh, speaker. Uh, he leads an ongoing weekly uh, Monday evening meditation group in the Castro and is the co-guiding teacher for the LGBT queer Sangha at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. He's the hospice volunteer for many years with Shanti Project and the Zen Hospice Report. Um, do we have a uh, host today? Yes, we do. My name is Jay. I'm pleased to be your host today. There are refreshments outside for you to enjoy eating. If you have tea, there's plenty of space in the top rack of the dishwasher. Just put your cup there and your tea bag and compost. If you want to continue eating after we break up, people who go to lunch together meet at the front door at about 12.30. I will be walking around with the Donna Bowl. And I want to say that I've been coming here for more than nine years, and today is the first time I ever saw a breakdown of our monthly expenses. This is where your generosity, your data, goes. We ask for a contribution of $10 to $20. If you can't afford that, please know that you continue to be welcome here regardless of your ability to pay. We want everyone to enjoy our fellowship. And one ongoing way that we do receive funds is through donations to community thrift store. If you give anything there, if you have anything at home that does not spark joy in your life <laughs> any longer, please consider going to the community thrift store naming GBF as the recipient and those checks come in quarterly to us from uh, community thrift. It's an excellent, a pretty painless way to give to us. And make sure you look at the website what they take. They don't take bed linens. There's certain things. That Carpets. You know. yeah, right. Used under. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other announcements? Yes, Richard. Yes, I just want to uh, remind everyone GBF's annual retreat is October 11th through 13th at Vajrapani. 
Trip Lyle is our uh, drama teacher. There's still space. I think there's some flyers out on the, I guess you'd call it the coffee table, or whatever, the table in front of the sofa. So if you have any questions, you can talk to me or Jerry. We're sort of in charge, if you will. And please consider coming. Um, I'd just like to mention one of the things that we, the, the um, Donna goes to support is the newsletter, which goes largely to uh, incarcerated populations. So that's one way that we can be of service to people who don't have a lot of resources available to them. Uh, yes, and let's add that the other thing that we do out of generosity is the Larkin Street lunches, uh, dinners which are very much appreciated, has been going on for a very long time, and that is another another thing that Donna supports. So can we gather for the dedication now? By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.